our own lives. But as I've come to the last chapter of Jonah for today, I'm actually less confident that we are just like Jonah. I mean, sure, there are, there are still lots of ways in, in which we are. That, that's still all, all true. And I'm sure that we've been challenged with them along the way as we've looked at this book over the past weeks. But I suspect that there is actually a fundamental difference between Jonah and us, or at least between Jonah and myself. See, my issue is that too often, I actually think it's hopeless to evangelize. Because to be embarrassingly honest, I doubt God's ability to save, and to save these people in particular. I'm hoping and trusting that you're a better Christian than I am, and you don't have this problem. But, but in me saying this, uh, I do so not to say, oh my gosh, this is our pastor, what have we done? But to actually hold my life up as a mirror that perhaps uh, you can look at yourselves in and see the reflection in as well. Because think, think about it for yourself. It might be the same-sex attracted friend at work. It might be the abortion advocates on campus. It might be the bogans who live up the road. It might be Dan Andrews. It might be the serial cheater. It might be your Muslim dentist. It might be someone who's been the victim of abuse in the church or the family member who refuses to hear any God talk. It might be that good person who is living a really successful life with no evident need for God in their lives who lives next door to you. Or it might just be that person who, who did you wrong. Let's leave aside the question of whether or not we think that they deserve God's grace. That's a, that's a whole different thing. The issue is that we can view these people as simply too hard for God. It's hopeless to evangelize them because they're never going to convert. They're never going to repent. They're never going to turn. They are too hard. They are unsavable. They're too entrenched in their ways. They're too profoundly antagonistic. They're too wounded. They're even just too okay in and of themselves. They don't need God. They don't want God. And so in our heart of hearts, we doubt that God actually could even save them anyway. They are beyond his reach and power. And so I don't even try. This is wildly different to Jonah, though. Because Jonah, where, where I sometimes go they're not even going to respond, so why bother? Where, where, where that might be me, Jonah goes, he didn't want to take the word, the message of God's word to the Ninevites precisely because he knew that God not only could, but that he would show them his grace. Jonah prays in the passage that, that we read, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In effect, he's saying, I knew you would do this, God. And so then there is hope, even for our crotchety neighbor, 
our aggressively atheistic colleague, our heavily tattooed and drug-affected sibling, our disillusioned and wounded friend. There is hope for them. Because if God can work repentance in the people of Nineveh, then his love and his grace can break through to these people in our own lives. Jonah tells us that no one is too hard for God to save, that no one is outside the effective scope of God's grace, that no one is hopeless or unsavable, not even a reluctant, disobedient, self-focused and moody prophet. And so that's the, the first challenge for us, the first challenge for me from this passage today to really believe that God has not only the desire, but actually the, the power and the ability to save. This is one of the challenges of, of being a preacher. It's not all rosy and glorious up here because you study God's word and before it does anything to you guys, it smashes us. Do I really believe that God has the power to save? Sometimes this seems more miraculous to us than God instantly calming a storm at sea or providing a sea monster to swallow and keep someone alive for three days. I mean, that, that stuff's easy, but saving people, I mean, gee whiz. But Nineveh shows us that even the hardest, worst, furthest away from people, furthest away from God people, I should say, that they are still very much, very much, within the scope of his transformative power and his saving grace. And so if, if the Ninevites can turn to God, then anyone can. And literally, thank God for that. Because what hope would there be for us otherwise? So I thought I'd just ease into the final chapter of Jonah today to just... Keep it light and breezy as we start. But in all of this, uh, I think we, that there's some of the problem that Jonah has within this chapter. Because he, he absolutely wants God to be patient and gentle and gracious with him. But while he believes that God can and will be patient and gentle and kind to others... Jonah doesn't want him to be. And so God has to work in this passage, not only on the Ninevites for their repentance, like we saw last week, but he also, or again and still, has to keep working on Jonah. And so let's, let's dive in to the text from the start and we'll work through it. We pick it up in that last verse of chapter 3. It says, when God saw what they did, what the Ninevites did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. I know that you are a God who, who uh, relents from sending calamity. Now, God, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And in the original Hebrew text, there's a pause here for us to, to take in Jonah's response. 
God has been gracious. God's spirit has moved and hardened, horrible people have repented. Jonah has led the the largest, most successful evangelistic rally of his time, if not of all time. And instead of rejoicing at the work of God, instead of celebrating the power of God's grace, Jonah's angry. He's not just annoyed or, or ticked off. It's not that he's just got the irrits, but he is infuriated at God for what he's done. And why was he so mad? He was so mad because in his view, the Ninevites deserved the destruction that was threatened. The judgment of God upon them, that would have been just and right. The prophet Nahum declares over Nineveh, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victim. God had said back in in Jonah 1 that the the wickedness of the city had come up before him. And so the right and the just response is the pronouncement over it of its judgment and of its destruction. But instead of raining down his judgment, God showers them with his grace. And this infuriates Jonah. Jonah the recipient of God's grace time and time again within the story of this book, who is also the recipient of God's grace simply by being part of the people of Israel, those that God had set apart for himself, not because of any merit on their part, but just because he was gracious towards them as a people. Jonah does not want to see others, especially then those who are so undeserving. He doesn't want to see them also receive grace. It's not that he thinks that they can't, it's that he doesn't want them to. Jonah, he's a hard-hearted prophet. He knows what his God is like, but he refuses to be like his God. In fact, it would be better, he says, for him to die than to witness these vile pagan sinners receive grace. And so then the text pauses, as do we, to examine our own hearts. What is your heart? What is my heart toward the lost? Do I care? Do I want them to get what's coming to them? Am I like the elder brother in the story that Jesus tells who is mad at the father for having the party when the wayward son comes home? Or is my heart aligned with the compassion and the concern of God? Am I like the father who rushes out to meet that son and is then the first to rejoice? Do I have concern and compassion for the lost? But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Here we see a soft hearted God interact with his hard hearted prophet. Because if we're talking about people getting what they deserve, Jonah, based on his attitude, based on his actions, after everything that God has already done for him, 
Jonah right now? Probably warranted. God just throwing his hands up in the air and giving up on him. But God stays with his prophet. And he challenges him. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah's not the one who's been wronged in this situation. Jonah's not the one who, in offering forgiveness, has to bear the cost of the offence against him. That's God. If anyone has the right to be angry at sinners escaping his judgment, it's him. And if he, the one who has actually been wronged, if he can relent, and if he can rejoice over a lost son coming home, then what right does Jonah have to stay mad? But he's, he doesn't get it. And so God needs to continue to work on this point with him. And so the story continues then as the scene changes. Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now Jonah would have come to, to Nineveh from the west. And so the implication of, of where he plonked himself down is that he had travelled the three days through the city, presumably preaching the, the message that God had, had given to him. He's made his, his three-day journey through the city and he's out the other side and he now sits himself down to rest there, out to the east. And there he waits to see what will happen, to see if the city will in fact still be destroyed. Where, where the king of Nineveh says, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion, he might turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Jonah sits there thinking, who knows? God may yet follow through with his fierce anger and destroy these people. And he's waiting to see what will happen. Well, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah and give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about this plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Now the other week, on one of those rare hot days of this summer, I was, I was doing work in our yard. I'm very lightweight when it comes to physical activity. And, and so I was laboring and doing my absolute best to stay hydrated and you know, nourished and, and all that kind of stuff. But despite all my efforts, according to Dr. Google, uh, I think I came down with a case of heat exhaustion because my head was pounding like no one's business and I was vomiting and I just could not stop and I just felt miserable and miserable. <laughs> so I'm sympathetic towards Jonah here when the sun is pounding down on him and he's feeling a bit faint. I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic. But he is a bit melodramatic and a bit of a drama queen at the same time. Because think about his story. Three days in a fish's belly. I mean, that would have been no picnic. But he took that, it seems, like a champ. He, he, he thrived in that context. He, he repented, he turned to God, and all was good. But now, as the plant that gave him shade withers and dies, he's feeling just the absolute injustice of it all. 
Here he is suffering while Nineveh gets off scot-free. The world, the world's against him. He may as well just eat worms and, and or better yet, just to die. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Notice in the story, he was very happy about the plant when it was giving him its shade. He was very angry about God showing mercy to the Ninevites, but he was very happy when God showed grace towards him. Now then, he's so angry, I wish I were dead because the plant is no longer sheltering him. He wants, and it seems he even feels like that he deserves, God's shelter from the harsh realities of life for himself. But he doesn't care about the Ninevites' protection from their destruction. God's hand's behind both. But where one makes him happy, the one that blesses him, the other makes him mad. And so the Lord said to him, You've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Twice God had asked Jonah a question to get him, hopefully, to look at himself and to see just his ridiculousness and his inconsistencies. But neither time does he do so. Neither time does he respond to the question. So now God, God needs to spell it out for him. Mate, you've not figured it out on your own. Let me tell it to you how it is. He says to Jonah, you're concerned about a plant that you didn't plant in the ground. You didn't water. You didn't tend it. You didn't nourish it. You certainly didn't make it grow. And if you're concerned about a simple plant that you had no involvement in, zero involvement in, shouldn't I, you know, by comparison, shouldn't I have a far greater compassion for the people of Nineveh, who I created and formed in their mother's wombs and into whom I breathed my very breath of life? You feel heartache and loss at the loss of a single plant Jonah, imagine the depth of my longing for this great city full of thousands of people. In effect, God says to him, you're all soft-hearted about this plant, but you're hard-hearted towards people. You're concerned about your own well-being, but you're indifferent to that of others. You're happy to be the recipient of my favour and grace, yet you resent me showing it to other people. Ah, oh, Jonah, don't you see the inconsistency and the utter selfishness of that. And in contrast then, God is soft-hearted both to Jonah and to the Ninevites. That's not to say that he's not just or that he lets anyone get away with anything. That's not the case at all. There is no way that God is soft on sin, but his heart is soft towards sinners. And we see this. We see God's justice and his grace, his hardness on sin and his softness towards sinners in Jesus. In Romans 3, Paul writes that God presented Christ 
as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sin seated beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now in Jesus, we see God's justice. As Jesus dies on the cross, he does so as a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus there bears the full weight of the wrath of God's judgment, demonstrating God's righteousness as he does so. Sin does not go unpunished. Jesus bore all of that wrath and judgment. But in Jesus, we also see God's grace because it actually should be us who's bearing the wrath and the judgment and the punishment. But it's Jesus who does so in our place so that we don't have to. And so in Jesus, God is just punishing sin, but also the one who justifies, the one who shows grace because he punished it in himself, in Jesus, and not on us. And so Jesus, uh, God is extremely hard on sin and extraordinarily soft on sinners because he loves them. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved Nineveh that he sent his prophet Jonah that whoever believed in his message and repented should not perish under God's judgment but have life. God so loved Jonah that he provided a sea monster that he would not perish in the storm but would have life with God and his people. God so loved us despite the wickedness of our sin and our self-righteousness, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to demonstrate both his justice and his grace through Jesus' death on the cross, that we would believe in him by faith and not perish, but have eternal life in his kingdom. God so loved the world, which includes even those people who we doubt that God actually could save. But God so loves even them that he gave his one and only son. And then he sent us, his people, with his message of salvation. That whoever hears and believes that word shall not perish, but have eternal life with God. This is, this is what Jonah missed. While being soft on his own sin and on himself as a person, he was hard on the sin of the Ninevites and hard on them as people, hard-hearted about them. But God, while always hard on sin, is also soft on the people who he loves, which is everyone. And so he has done everything to make their repentance and their salvation possible if they respond to him and his grace. And then the story of Jonah ends. We don't see what happens next. We don't see how Jonah responds after God's last words to him. It's left deliberately open to actually invite us to respond to God's concern for the people who don't know him. 
should we not be compassionately concerned along with him? And and God was compassionately concerned for Jonah as well. That's why he refused to leave Jonah in his hard-heartedness. And while the story is left open for us to respond, it's like like it's cut off without the, the conclusion. The story's left open, yet Jonah's response is actually implied. After all, Jonah probably wrote this book, or at least he told the story for it to be written down. And Jonah is constantly presented in an unflattering light, so as to show up time and time again the grace and the goodness and the power of God. So as the book of Jonah ends, there's an implicit question for us to consider. What is God speaking and doing in your life, in my life, to get us on board with his heart? We see him constantly pursuing Jonah to get him on board with his heart and with his mission. And so what is God speaking and doing to get me on board, to get me aligned with his heart? And how will I respond to that? That's the question that we're left with as, jo- as, the st- as the story finishes, unfinished, if you like, because we now pick it up. And how we respond shapes how that story continues. So let's pray, church. God, as we've come to this final chapter in the book of Jonah, we've been sobered by the challenge of it. And while there are places where we might see the absolute difference between us and Jonah, (laughs) yet there are far too many places where there's also the similarities. And where Jonah remained stubbornly in his, um, I don't know, his judgment on the Ninevites. God, I pray that we rather would be soft-hearted to what you are speaking and doing in our lives. That you wouldn't have to get so brutal with us, but that we'd be responsive. That we'd see your heart that we'd believe in your power to save, that we'd have your concern and compassion for the lost, and that as you work in us to prompt us to have that concern take, take action, that we'd respond in, in faithful, willing obedience. God, you are a God who is just and righteous and holy. And Jonah makes us aware of just how much we actually deserve your justice. But you show grace. And we just want to, man, we we can hardly do anything more but just to fall before you in, in thanks and appreciation and adoration and praise for your grace towards us. 
that you in Jesus spared us from what we deserved and gave us what we could never imagine, never earn, never merit, but did so to your great delight and joy. So we thank you. We thank you that Jesus died in our place so that we didn't have to. We thank you too that he rose again in order to give us his life, that we can live with you and as part of your kingdom and be your, your church and your people in this world. And so I pray then that as we finish this book, that we are responding to, to you and the invitation and the challenge that you are, you are giving to us. God, if we're here and we, we've never received your grace, and we sit here well aware that we deserve your judgment and yet want to put our faith and trust in Jesus. God, I pray that you'd hear our prayers when we say, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for bearing the justice of God so that I didn't have to. May I now receive your grace and be welcomed into you your family, your people, and to live my life following after you. And if we're here as people who have already responded to that grace, God, we come to you and we ask, we ask for more grace because we need it. We repent of our doubt. We repent of our hard-heartedness. We repent of our lack of concern. We repent of our disobedience. And we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And we throw ourselves afresh on, on your mercy, knowing that there you will lift us up. And just like you don't abandon Jonah, no matter how much he warranted it, that you will walk with us leading us in your ways to be the people that you want us to be. And so we pray to this end, God. May your word have had its effect in us today. And may we be changed by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.